Hey everybody, I'm Larry Little, back in 2021 with our Crossing the Line podcast, uh, a time when we talk with people about the moments in their life when they cross the line from leading with their head to leading with their heart, and from leading with their heart to leading with their head. And this year, we have some very exciting guests to talk to. I'm very excited about where we're headed with this Crossing the Line podcast. Thank you for the outstanding reviews you've given us in 2020 and just for being a part of the Crossing the Line family. Uh, we're going to jump right in because our first guest, Dr. Nick Glispie, is an incredible man and leader uh, in the North Alabama area and, and community. He's also a very dear friend of mine. Uh, Dr. Glispie has studied with some of the brightest people and, and the brightest minds in the world, and I actually consider him to be one of those bright minds as well. He is he is in, incredible when you, you get to, to him to share from his, his insights, from his heart, from his head. And that's what we do uh, on this podcast. Uh, with, with Dr. Nick, we're going to just sit down and talk to him first about himself. We're going to let him take us through how he grew up. And we're going to just glean some, some uh, truth, some, some values, and some behaviors that, that, he, uh, that he learned and, and that he held on to from a child all the way up to an adult. And it's really cool to hear his insight on leadership based on his own experience. And then we're going to have a second podcast. We're going to have a part two to this podcast because I just think it was so rich and, and valuable. In, in part two, Dr. Glispie is going to talk to us about uh, the coronavirus. He has done extensive study around that. He has an incredibly uh, interesting view on the vaccine, on the virus itself, uh, and, and on mask wearing. And, and I just want you to hear it. It's going to be really good stuff and really practical stuff that, that you can take away and use uh, in your everyday life. So uh, I'll, I'll shut up so we can get going. I want you to hear this. Let's jump into that conversation with Dr. Nick right now. Well, this is an honor. Uh, I am sitting with Dr. Nick Glispie, and uh, now that, that sounds kind of impressive in, in and of itself, but the truth is um, Nick is much more than a doctor. He's a leader. Uh, I've walked with Nick for years. We've been together, and he has taught me more than I can, can ever put into a, a podcast, but, but being able to watch Nick's life and, and watch him through struggle and watch him overcome and watch him succeed and the impact and influence that he has uh, is quite amazing. Uh, as I said in the intro, of course, he has in, he's an incredibly skilled physician and incredible experience, uh, not only here in our community, but across the, the, the southeast, really across the, the country and some of the work he's done previously. But all of that to say, that brilliant mind, um, it, it somehow has, he has, he has convinced himself to really lead well. And so many times we see leaders who are brilliant and doctors who are brilliant, quite frankly, but have no bedside manner and certainly have no ability to lead people. What is unique about Dr. Nick Gillespie is that he is a leader of people. He loves people. He has a heart for people. It's amazing that to, to watch him and to see how loved he is in his practice. He has a practice and uh, out, out from where we are in North Alabama, kind of in rural Alabama, but uh, he is he is loved by the people and cared for because he authentically loves and cares for them. So all of that to say, Dr. Nick, thank you for being with us today. Well, good morning, Larry. And uh, seeing ourselves on the video, we have been around together a long time. And <laughs> 
And the, uh, the video shows that. <laughs> it does. I, I try not to look. It reminds me of where I am. You know, <laughs> what is that? Self-denial. We're going to Maybe say. so. <laughs> oh, well, it, it certainly has been a journey. And so today on Crossing the Line, I, I want to take some time just to explore you and who you are and how you got to be who you are, if you will. So take us back, Nick, if you will. Let, let's let's learn a little bit about Dr. Nick Gillespie before he was Dr. Nick Gillespie. Um, let's go back to Nick the child, if we can, just to learn about your life. So go back to when you were a child and, and tell us where you grew up and, and kind of walk us through a day in the life of eight-year-old Nick, if you will. Okay. Well, we already made the comment. I'm a little older than we, I was when we first met. And uh, so my history goes back back a while so things were, were different then mm. i grew up on a sustenance farm and what that means is if you grew what you ate you you, mm. you, you, you pretty much wore what your mother made you that kind of thing and uh, we ate well and we dressed well mm. and uh, we learned i learned very early on that uh, uh, what effort you were willing to put in uh, what you got back out of it was a reflection of that mm. So we have this pattern again with these great leaders. Uh, it's it's hard work. It's learning to work hard from very, from a very young age, and then also innovation, uh, thinking, thinking about what else can we do if something broke. Nick said we had to fix it. Uh, I think these are are just incredibly important things to understand for all of us in our lives that that we get out what we put in, hard work. Let's let's lean into that. Let's use innovation and start thinking for ourselves. Uh, great stuff, Nick. It was that kind of a life. Now, it's it's uh, uh, societally, uh, I guess you could, uh, uh, and people do think, well, that was that was a hard way to grow up. It was a wonderful way to grow up mm. uh, because yes, we did have common chores that we did uh, that were uh, perhaps mundane. Uh, but on the sustenance farm, also you had to have plenty of ideas. You had, if something broke, you fixed it. Uh, you didn't call the repairman. Wow. Um, and we had plenty of time for fun too. Uh, a typical morning, uh, I remember uh, uh, my my wake up call in the morning was the oven door opening and the biscuits going into the oven. And I think that sound was a little exaggerated. That was our our, our alarm for the kids to, hey, the biscuits are going in the oven. And then I noticed mom and dad started talking a little louder. Mm. Uh, that. Mom and dad would be up cooking breakfast and uh, we'd get up ready for the day. If it's summertime, of course, the sun would be up in the wintertime. It was dark when we'd get up. Mm. Some of the older brothers, I was the last of six. Okay. So I had siblings that were in their nearly in their 20s when I was born. So um, some of the older brothers and sisters, when I was a small child you were talking about, um, uh, had chores in the morning to make them milk the cow or whatever. I had none. I got up and got some hugs and, and had a good <laughs> breakfast. Uh, uh, and then from then on, the day was uh, whatever the day was. I mean, we could be in the cotton field, the corn field, the garden, or nowhere. We could be uh, at, the, uh, at, the, uh, at, at the swimming hole. Uh, we could be doing whatever. Uh, I remember one story, uh, thinking about this, and we, we were together. Mom and Dad were the leaders. Okay. They were the authority, mm -hmm. and, and uh, we were under their authority. And, and, he would say, what if your mom asked you to do this? What would you, what if you told her no? Well, it never occurred to right. tell my mother no. They were the authority. Uh, respect for authority. Uh, come on. I mean, 
you know, we we just have such a lack of, of respect for authority, I think, in so many instances today. We seem to have lost our way when it comes to the true north of, of respecting authority, respecting others uh, even, and uh, that personal respect and respecting those who are in a position of authority seems to be um, some kind of a lost um, ideal, at least um, in today's culture. But uh, Nick knew about it because he grew up with it. What they said, and we were in the cornfield one time, and my brother Charles, who was more mischief, uh, had more mischief in him than the rest of us, um, went to the house. Uh, I think he had to go to his restroom or something. And he was a long time coming back, long enough that I was really small. And I'm thinking, like, he's probably going to be in trouble. Because as that small kid with a lot of older, older siblings, I spent a lot of time going, I see what he did, and I don't want to do that. Right. So you're kind of you're kind of learning, yeah, learning from them. Uh, but those guys were also uh, involved in, in problem solving during the day. Mm-hmm. A lot of problems coming up on Cessna's farm on the farm, and and you you solved them. Like I said, you didn't call it yeah. a repairman. You solved it. Now you well, you got to take us. Is, did he get in trouble? Did he not take us? Going back? to take you back yeah. there. Thank you. Uh, uh, he didn't get in trouble, but here's what he did. Uh, when he came back to the field. Uh, and I'll remember it like it was yesterday. He had a he had dad's fishing rod. We also had fishing, hunting, that kind of stuff. Oh so we had dad's fishing rod on the end of it. He had built a kite out of some sticks and newspaper, and he had tied mom's underwear as the tail. <laughs> and it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. First, there was a kite. You know, where'd that come from? We didn't have a kite there. And uh, so he had made a kite, and he brought that back. He was flying it as he came back to the field. And we all broke up. So he didn't get in trouble. And he, and he gave us some levity. And, and, and that's just the kind of the way it was. That's we, amazing. We were there. We were supporting each other. And, and we needed that that day. And, and Charles provided it for us. And at that time, I thought, you know, that was pretty cool. I got a cool brother. One of these days, I'm going to grow up, make a kite, and fly some really big panties. <laughs> yes. You, you got to be, be just like Charles. You just like Charles. So, so that was, in, you know, in one of the days. Another problem that got solved. And. And I was learning from these things. Sure. Another problem sure. that got solved uh, uh, was my mother uh, was in charge of the garden, and she uh, was very responsible with that. And she had what you might consider heirloom seeds. She had the seeds that she planted every year. She saved seeds and replanted okay. them. Okay. That had been going on forever. These seeds were very predictable. Mm-hmm. She knew what she was going to get out of them. Well, all of a sudden, hybrids got invented. And uh, I was a young kid. And I remember dad coming in, he'd been to the feed and seed store and he was talking about the hybrids and how the yield was better. And uh, there's some questions back and forth about how this works. And there's some talks about genetics, which they didn't really understand. And I certainly didn't, mm-hmm. but uh, mom decided to do an experiment. And so she planted some of the hybrids, right? Along with her things that she knew was going to be good. Okay. The hybrids did great that year. I mean, the yield was very, very good. The watermelons, remember the watermelons and corn particularly, was very good. Uh, and she got what she expected out of her seeds. And so she did what she had always done. She collected seeds at the end of the season for planting next year. Well, the problem is the hybrids had crossed in. And so the next year, the garden was a disaster. And I saw my mother lament over that. Uh, there was some scurrying. We had to replant with hybrids. And uh, um, something that had been dear to her all of her mm-hmm. life, those heirloom seeds, were gone. Oh, my. So, so yeah. those were all gone. I saw her lament. And then I also say, saw her say, well, 
that's over with. Here's what it is from now on. Yeah. Let's pick up and go on. So yeah. she she found some joy in that. And so from then on, it was it was brand new seeds every year, hybrid seeds. So lessons learned on the farm. I mean, amazing that you had that opportunity. But you were the baby, at least in that generation. You were the baby, right? Right. But what what type of work ethic was required of you, even though you were the youngest? Uh, you said a moment ago, start when you're at six. I went when you're eight. Things didn't really change much for me when I was eight. When you grew up in that environment, yeah. uh, the other siblings were working. Uh, and when it became something that you could do, you sort of wanted to do it too. Okay. I would, maybe if your other siblings were playing ball, you'd want to play ball. Well, this right. was different. Right. But it was still problem solving. It right. wasn't just mundane, uh, uh, repetitive activities. It was a lot of problem solving. It was fun. It was figuring mm. out how to do things. Uh, and so as soon as you were old enough uh, to do a task that you could be trusted with, you were allowed to do that task. You weren't made to do that task. Your hand wasn't put in the vice. They didn't hold your hand over the fire. I mean, you just naturally did that. Wow. And so, so uh, uh, consequently, uh, it became uh, evident that we needed someone to drive the tractor when I was about six. Okay. And that became me. So I started driving when I was six. Six years old, uh, you were driving a tractor. And it was a, a it was a privilege. It wasn't work. Oh, it was wonderful. Dad showed me exactly what to do. Yeah. It was simple enough. I was never given a job that I didn't have the, the uh, capabilities of doing. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like something was going to be over my head. And they knew I could do that, and I did it. And it relieved my sister, who was having to drive the tractor, plus um, pick the down row. The down row is the row that gets knocked down when you run over with the tractor. Oh, Somebody okay. has to pick that, and she just had to be off and on the tractor. Okay. And so at the time, I was sitting in the wagon bed with them. I was with the family. And uh, so it was kind of a, a move up for me to get to do something. And it was certainly less boring than what I was doing. At six years At old, six years let's old. say, you started working on the farm. Right. And so, um, so work ethic. Um, we enjoyed work. Uh, and I enjoy work. Mm. Uh, the, the thought that I might have to retire someday scares the tickets out. Yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah, I can imagine. And that's, that was ingrained in you um, early on. It's just part of who you are. But as you as you grew on that farm, and now let's say you know Nick is in his adolescent years, what was that like? What was it like? It changed a lot. Yeah. It changed a lot, uh, and the world changed a lot. Mm. Tell you this story uh, about the farm. Uh, we also did migrant farm work. We went to Michigan and picked cherries during wow. the summer. How about that? And uh, my dad was. There's a beautiful farm. I took it. It was it was on a peninsula out in like Michigan. The farm was. It was absolutely gorgeous. And uh, loved going up there. Mm. And my dad was the overseer for this farm. And so we got the crew together from all over the southeast to go pick cherries. Well, I remember one summer, um, it was probably around 65, dad made his phone calls, you know, families like us, good, hardworking families, and said, um, you know, here's the date we're going to be there. We're going to make, make it this year. Looking forward to seeing you. And uh, these people, like family with us, would, would spend time with them every year. And one after the other, they said, no, we can't come this year. They've started giving us a check. And uh, so we can't work. If they do, they'll take the check away. My and goodness. I remember my dad saying these words. He says, are you going to tell me that you would accept somebody giving you money rather than working for your money? And they said, well, they've told us we have to do this or they'll take the money away. And the check comes year round. And although we make a lot of money when we're working, you know, it's, it's in, it's, it, the check is more secure. And so I remember my dad hanging up the phone and looking at my mother. And I remember these words. He said, 
Esther, it's over. And he saw it. Oh, uh, wow. Is that way of life, because of, of that particular thing uh, in our history, was over. It was over. Okay. You, you need to take a minute and, and really take that story in because it says a lot about who we are um, in our country, how things begin to change uh, for good, for bad, whatever. But the way of life of that, that hardworking family uh, going to work the farm in Michigan, uh, that, that kind of labor uh, changed forever. What does that say uh, about how we lead others? What does that say about expectations? What does that say about um, helping someone to um, provide for their family by teaching them skills versus just giving them entitlements? I'll let you draw your own conclusion to all of that, but uh, certainly it was a significant moment for Nick. But, but not only that, I think for, um, for our country as well. And uh, so things changed on the farm too. Uh, uh, my old, older brothers and sisters were gone, and I got to where it was just me. Uh, and uh, my mom started working uh, public work, and my dad too. And so I did. And so uh, uh, at about the age of 12 or 13, I was driving to work. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I worked at a local service station, uh, which was also a grocery store. Yeah. And so I was uh, cutting bologna and uh, uh, pumping gas and that kind of thing. How about that? And, uh, but then shortly after that, I got into broadcasting and started working at the local radio station. As a teenager? As a teenager. Okay. I got my license when I was just turned 16. Because I got, as soon as I got my driver's license, me and about five other guys drove to Atlanta to the Gaslight Building and took the test to get our license to go on the air. And I actually got on the air. So I was on the air for uh, four or five years. Uh, during high school, I worked <clears throat> work ethic. I was having fun. I didn't work. Uh, I would turn on the radio station. I would be there at sunup, which in the summertime was pretty early. In wintertime, it's you know it's not quite so early. Mm -hmm. uh, sunup, and I worked until eight o'clock. And then another guy would come on and work for eight hours, and then I would come back at three and work until sundown. So those are fairly long hours in the summertime. Not so much in the wintertime. That was five days a week. But then I worked sunup until noon on Saturday and Sunday. So seven days a week, two shifts a day at the radio station uh, okay. in high school and had a blast. All right. So we're going to ask you to do something and we have a little fun. All okay. Right. We're going back now. You are in the radio station and you are on the air. Give us your radio voice. Tell you This is Nick Lispie with whatever the call letters you want to make up. Let us hear a sample of Nick, the, the radio broadcaster. What does it sound like? Bill Randall, 650. Dorothy, yes, ma'am. And the Axel Wide Peppermint Endurance Company in the Bashful Johnny C home of the Grand Ole Conglomeration, Fannie Hill University, and the bathtub of the South. It's 7.30. <laughs> you didn't expect that. No, did I did you? not expect that. That is awesome. What, another talent. I, that's not I the first time I've been asked to do that. <laughs> well, I'm sure. That's awesome. So you worked your way through doing those kinds of things as a teenager. Right. And, and, and what, talking about a work ethic. So you, I think I heard you right. You said you that, that was a seven-day a week gig, because half a day on Saturday, half a day on Sunday. Is that right? Right. Graduated high school and uh, had plans. That when I graduated, I started at uh, a station in Florence, uh, a rock and roll station, which was really fun, which was a big step up from the uh, station I was working at in Moulton, as far as listeners goes. Mm -hmm. And uh, worked there for a couple of years. And one day decided, you know, I've always wanted to be a doctor. And this is, I'm having fun. 
but I need to go be a doctor. I need to go be. Well, I mean, yeah. You talk about though from a leadership perspective for just a moment, because you're an incredible leader. But but you've told me that that you really have never considered yourself that way. It just came to you, or you just were. And you said that realization. When did you realize? You said something happened in your in your class as a high school. Uh, and we were talking about that the other day, as, yeah. as you had mentioned this uh, uh, podcast to me. Uh, I'm not sure what grade it was in, third, fourth, fifth grade, but uh, we had the first time you have class elections, and I got elected president. And I'm thinking, why did that happen? I mean, yeah, how did that happen? Well, and I spent a lot of time thinking about that because that happened sort of repeatedly, and I got to thinking about it, and because of the way I grew up, I think it had something to do with it. I think it was in a very unique situation uh, that taught me some leadership skills that hopefully I've improved on, but, mm. but from an early age, and that was, I was the youngest of six kids. I had a sister uh, who was expecting at the same time my mother was with me, mm. and so, uh, and she ended up having uh, four children, and uh I was the oldest of that group by a couple of months. Of your cousins. Of so my you, nieces and nephews. Nieces, well, that's right. They're your nieces and nephews. So you and, were the and oldest. And so we were frequently together. I mean, uh, yeah. that family, very close family, and we yeah. stayed close. So I was, uh, we, was around them a lot. And so in one sense, I was the youngest in one family. Right. And so I got the experience of watching brothers and sisters make mistakes that right. I did not repeat. And then uh, I got the experience of leading uh, these um uh, nieces, nephews, who were like siblings to me. <clears throat> they were all I ever knew. So, uh, um, no, but we never hired babysitters. I mean, if those kids were to be taken care of, the oldest kid in the bunch was responsible. And so that was me. Mm -hmm. um, if those kids messed up, uh, then it was up to me to make sure that they didn't. So if they got hurt, why did they get hurt? If I was the instigator, if I instigated those activities that got them hurt or got them in trouble, I probably got a spanking. Wow. But if I wasn't, I got a lecture. You know, these children shouldn't do this. They shouldn't do that. And so I didn't like the lecture. And I certainly didn't like the, the spanking. So right. I didn't instigate much at all. And uh, uh, so I learned some leadership skills from that and, and was taught leadership skills from the brothers that, and sisters. That's accountability at, at the core, isn't it? I mean, you were accountable for, for your nephews and nieces and, right. and had to, to deal with the consequences. of. And I learned from that. To keep them busy. Mm. I learned that at a very early age. Keep them busy doing something productive uh, so that when the parents came in, um, you know, the house wasn't a wreck. The house was mm. whatever uh, or the yard or wherever we were. Yeah. Uh, and then I would see the children, my nieces and nephews, be rewarded yeah. for that good behavior. That's great. And that was pretty cool for me because, uh, uh, you know, nobody's getting yelled at. It was, it was a good situation and things moved forward. And things move forward. So let's move forward. You decided you want to be a doctor, right? What kind of process did you have to go through? Because now you're, you know, you're a DJ. You're you've graduated high school, I guess, and all of a sudden you decide you want to be a doctor. What did that look like? Not really. All of a sudden, I decided I want to be a doctor when I was probably around ten or twelve okay. years old. Okay, all right. I'd made that decision. Okay, got it. And uh, uh, I, this had been on my mind, and I had. Uh, uh, any chance I got to look at something medical or study something medical, I always did that. Oh, that's cool. So, but I had to get a college education, so right. I, I started out in that, and uh, um, it was up to me to get through college, and I was able to get through college not owing any debt. Wow. So that was cool. Yeah. But that means I worked through college. 
yeah. so and uh, and also was lucky enough to get scholarships so sure uh, the scholarships came and uh, 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 you know I was able to pay the bills by working in college and then after that I was uh, uh, was lucky enough to get immediately into medical school and uh, uh, got scholarships there too. Okay, so talk to me about medical school for a minute because you grew up on a farm, hard work, seven days a week, doing different things, and now you find yourself, you know, you're through, you're through undergrad, you're in med- medical school. What what was the work requirements like in medical school compared to that work ethic on the farm? Did that prepare you for medical school? Did it help you? Did it not? What what was it like? Uh, I would have to say uh, yes and no. Uh, it prepared me in that there was, you, you had to keep going sometimes when you didn't feel like going. Right. Okay. Uh, didn't prepare me because medical school was much tougher than working on the farm. Uh, it was more day and night. Uh, okay. uh, it, it could All literally right. be day and night wow. getting through medical school. And so you, you did that and you were putting yourself through school. Now you're in med school, got through med school. Where did you Where did you begin? What happened after that? Where did you begin your practice? What, after med school, where'd you go? Okay, right after med school. Uh, well, during med school, actually, uh, the hospital in our neighboring town, Moulton, mm-hmm. uh, was in dire straits, and they were about to close. Well, mm-hmm. uh, chairman of the department, I had not planned on going back to Moulton. I planned on being a uh, professor at UAB or something of oh, that nature. Okay. I was. I was. I loved UAB. I loved Birmingham, and and I had found my home. But my chairman of the department, the dean of the medical school, and the administrator of UAB Hospital all came to me and said, we want you to go to Moulton uh, and complete your residency. And how's that going to work? Well, they'd worked all that out where I would spend uh, a week in Moulton and a week in Birmingham, alternating with, with another physician friend of mine. And uh, so we started that. And so that put me in Moulton. And uh, it, was, it was a God thing. It, it's mm. probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Wow. Having my children around my parents and their yeah. family the way they were, uh, there, there's no way that I could reproduce anything like that for my kids. It was great. When did you know that you were going to go back to Moulton? The, and, and for those listening, uh, Moulton is a rural town in, in North Alabama, uh, Northwest Alabama, I guess. About 5,000 people. Yeah. And so that's kind of where you grew up. Right. I was, I'm practicing in the hospital I was born in. There you go. And when did you know that you wanted to go back? Walk us through uh, that process of awareness for you to go, hey, I want to I want to build my practice here. I'm not sure I can answer that question exactly like you've asked it because I didn't want to go back. Oh, and interesting. I didn't want to go back. It. My wife was from there and she didn't want to go back. All right. Uh, we uh, um, uh, had the big city thing in mind and mm-hmm. uh, uh, we like that. We like that that sort of lifestyle for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I told the, the good Lord a long time ago, back when I decided I wanted to be a doctor, back when I was about 10 or 12 years old, I would heard knocking on the open, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, asking to be answered. And so I told the door, told the Lord that time if he would help me become one of these things that we I was having this conversation with him, that I would walk through the door if he opened it. And so that door to Moulton was, I told you what happened. It was too wide open. I had to go back to Moulton. Mm. And so uh, I felt like that was a thing I had to do, and I did it. But I've I fallen in love with it, of course. I couldn't imagine mm. being anywhere else. Mm. Well, you've certainly made an, an impact through the years in your practice. I want you to think about for me, though, now as you as you look at your life and, and where you are today, what is a, a struggle that you have overcome or that you've said, you know, this was an obstacle, but 
because we all struggle. All of us have, have, have things in our life that we've had to overcome. And sometimes you know, we look at this successful physician and who is you know in the season of his life now where he has incredible influence and, and those kinds of things, and we think, boy, he's just he's had it easy. He he hasn't had to overcome anything. He's just you know handed life has been handed to him on a silver platter, and we all know that's just not true. Uh, so help us to know if you don't mind sharing a struggle and how you overcame that struggle. Well. Um... Very personal. Uh, the struggle would be uh, struggling with attention deficit disorder mm. and and some uh, depression that hits every now and then. Yeah, uh, and that's a struggle. We learn how to de- deal with that uh, uh, and move ahead. And you you take the positive parts of that. There are positive parts of that too, and you use those positive parts as well. Um, uh, the impulsivity uh, can be used. Uh, I don't know. There's just uh, there, there can be some good in it, but there is also a struggle. Uh, um, uh, studying in medical school, uh, I could not get in a study group. They were too distracting to me. Oh. My studying was very solitary. That was a very lonely time oh, when wow. the school was lonely. I, when I got into clinics, I loved it because I was around people and, and to take what I'd learned in those first two years and, and start applying it and start problem, problem solving like we did back on the farm. Uh, and that was pretty cool. But those first two years were, were very lonely, and uh, it was very, I'm sure, very hard on my wife, too. She didn't complain about it, but uh, I remember uh, we put the TV in the trunk of the car because if the TV was on, it would get my attention. Uh, my and so uh, she went without TV, and uh, she's very supportive and, and wonderful lady. Wow. Uh, that, so, that's uh, amazing. So I overcame that. Plus, uh, um, not all decisions turned out exactly like you would hope. Um, you know, there are other uh, variables that play in, and sometimes things don't just happen just like, like you would like for them to. And so you have some setbacks, and I'm certainly had plenty of those. Well, it's amazing to me that you're self-aware because there are things that, that happen, and in, in even behaviorally or, or who we are, you said, hey, I have a ADD. I've struggled with some depression. And that, that self-awareness, I think, is so huge for us as individuals, for us, as we lead ourselves, because so many times people are not self-aware. Other people are aware. <laughs> Others see things in us, but but many times, you know, it's difficult for us to, to look at ourselves honestly and to be self-aware about our struggles, to be self-aware about, hey, I, I have to be alone. I have to focus alone. I can't I can't study in groups. I have, I have this thing. And so I know that's been difficult for you, but your self-awareness has allowed you to not only become aware of it, but to develop strategies, i.e. put the the TV in the trunk so that you can be successful, right? Right. Well, we're going to call time out right here because I I want to to take a minute for you to think about what Nick has taught us up to this point. And then we're going to stop and then we're going to go to part two where he talks about uh, the COVID-19 situation. But, but, But Nick said to us, he said, you know what? Work was, was, was fun for me. He said, I grew up with a strong work ethic, and, and we learned about innovation. What else could we do to fix things? And we didn't call people to fix things. We did. He, he talked about being responsible and having accountability and, and understanding the importance of respect and authority. He, he talks to us about, about how to move things forward and continuing to, to look forward. And then he was very vulnerable and, and talked about his attention deficit and and bouts of depression that just just showed incredible self-awareness 
all of those things, all of those things helps Nick to be who he is today. And all of those things in our life that, that we can go back and look at in our lives, those, those things that, that build character, those struggles, those victories, they help us to be who we are. Um, what, what a great insight by Dr. Nick Gillespie. Um, so very, very glad that he was able to join us on part one of this podcast. So we'll just call time out. Stay tuned. And I can't wait for you to hear what he says in part two as we talk about COVID-19.